Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem at any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Quentin Beresford is an adjunct professor at Sunshine Coast University. He's the author of The Rise and Fall of Guns Limited, Adani and the War Over Coal, and Wounded Country, which won the 2022 Queensland Premier's Award for a work of state significance. Today, I'm talking to Quentin Beresford about his new book, Rogue Corporations, Inside Australia's Biggest Business Scandals. Quentin Beresford, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Greg. Road Corporations details the scandalous life of business of corporations in Australia. You say there's a plethora of corporate scandals to choose from. What are the qualifying factors for inclusion in your list? Yeah, that, that presented a bit of a problem. But firstly, I think we should acknowledge the, the range and depth of these scandals over the past 40 years. They just roll through and they often have devastating and ruinous consequences for people. And uh, it did strike me that it was a systemic part of our corporate life in Australia and, and the way our economy functions. So I was focusing on what I thought was a real problem. Now, so the second question is then, which ones do you choose? There could have been 30. I chose 13. I briefly mentioned three or four others that were, were tangential to some of the bigger scandals. Uh, and so the selection of 13 came down to, firstly, I wanted to span across the history of, of the scandals from the 80s to the present day. So that meant I wanted to go back and revisit some of the better known ones, the collapse of Bond Corporation, uh, Jeffrey Edelston, Christopher Scase, because they were part of that phenomenon of the 80s that we did tend to corral as the, as the decade of greed had then moved on. I don't see it like that. Then I wanted scandals that, you know, really had big impacts on people. So HIH, the collapse of HIH insurance, basically brought the insurance industry in Australia to a halt until the government had to, you know, reconfigure it. Then I wanted scandals where there were official inquiries. Then you can get into, you know, the submissions to those inquiries, the public hearings. They often, that kind of material often gets overlooked in the day-to-day -day journalism because, you know, the caravan of the media moves on. That people like me can come back and have a good look at all that information, and there's just a plethora of it. So I think they were the uh, they were the criteria: the size of the scandals, the ruinous consequences, the historic spread, and the availability of of information. Rogue Corporation sets out to, as you say, explore the corporate scandals as a continuous phenomenon of Australian society over the past four decades. Now, one word stands out for me there, and that's the word continuous. Uh, so that suggests there's a corporate culture of malpractice or whatever it might be, which we accept in some way, uh, including by government and its regulators. Yeah, exactly. And look, I'm not trying to say there was a golden age of corporate life. I mean, obviously, capitalism has both great benefits to society and, you know, can have a dark side. We're all aware of that. From my perspective, the continuous nature of it really accompanies the deregulation of the economy and the privatisation economy of the economy from the 80s onwards. And what we know about that is, of course, it opened up the Australian economy to international forces, made it more productive. You know, Keating always gives a good spin on why this was necessary. But I think what was under-acknowledged at the time 
is that this gave uh, incentive for corporations to pursue maximising their their shareholder returns. And then we had the rise of these cowboy kind of uh, corporate leaders. And we did put a full stop on the 80s when the business model fell over. You know, these guys were corporate raiders, as we all remember, they were borrowing eye-watering amounts from banks. And Bond, of course, was the par exemplar of this kind of model. And of course, the, the 87 stock market crash came along and wiped most of these guys out. A couple of them went to jail. Um, but what really happens is, of course, is the scandals keep coming. You know, it was only a few years later that HIH imploded. And then on top of HIH was the James Hardy scandal, where they all lied about the medical funds set up to uh, handle asbestos cases. And so it rolled on. So it seemed to me there was never this period in the new deregulated economy where there weren't scandals. Now, I don't think deregulation and privatisation is the whole story, but I think that is a continuous thread in the story. And now it seems uh, that the Australia's scandalous corporate landscape is populated by a gallery of what you call lovable rogues. History tells us that they are more rogue than lovable, but what characteristics do they share? And why do we continue to be so enamoured with the idea of a, a lovable rogue? Yeah, look, I, I, it's just so fascinating to me, you know, the personality characteristics of these people at head corporations that, that, that career into scandal. And I do think they share certain characteristics. They've got great drive. They've got great energy. They've got this kind of deadly charisma. Uh, they're ruthless. They're often grandiose in nature. Now, not all of them have all those characteristics, you know, in, in one personality type, but they share that pool of characteristics. And what's interesting is to me is that those characteristics are often associated with what we might think a successful entrepreneur or CEO should have. You know, they should have drive, they should have energy, they should have ambition. But what happens is that in a lot of these cases, that morphs into very dangerous personality qualities that threaten the life of a corporation and then can, you know, threaten society and investors uh, as a consequence. So I agree with you. I agree with your description. They're more rogue than lovable. I mean, I think the concept of lovable rogue was probably applied most directly to Alan Bond. And if you look at all the obituaries to Alan Bond when he died in 2015, that descriptor was, was uh, very prevalent. I see Alan Bond, you know, with a bit of historical perspective differently. I mean, I think Alan Bond is probably the most... Um, terrible example of a white collar criminal that we've ever had in Australia. And these, and he's a kind of, he's a kind of warning that these kinds of characters can be drawn to run corporations. Of course, corporations in the modern world, of course, uh, there's, they're, the people are so well paid, they have so much power, they have so much status, they become gurus and they can attract, you know, they can attract quite dangerous people. And, and psychologists have been warning about this for decades. Now, I'm not saying every corporate leader that's involved in a scandal, you know, is, is a corporate criminal. I'm not saying that at all. Some of them are. And some of them have a concentration of these dangerous uh, qualities that put investors and society at risk. Now, in terms of Alan Bond, if we just move on to him a bit uh, as the lovable rogue, I mean, Bond stole from shareholders twice. $1.2 from Bell Resources. I mean, it was a corporate crime on a scale never seen before in Australia and probably hasn't been seen since. 
So the guy was a corporate criminal. By the way, he's got this intriguing background of a juvenile delinquent. And that never came through the sort of public commentary on him. Because what, what fixed Alan Bond in the public's mind, of course, was the America's Cup win. There's plucky from behind, daring do, um, heroic sporting event in a nation that loves sporting heroes. And you can't take that away from Alan Bond. You know, he put the money up. He had the drive. I mean, all those characteristics that we just talked about, you could see funneled into the America's Cup and bang oh. You know, as Hawkey famously said, you know, anybody who, you know, who, who wants their workers to go to work on Monday's a bum, a uh, national holiday. But the fact remains, he's a corporate criminal. Um, and he got three years for, for, for the Bell Resources, and I've forgotten how much, but a lesser amount for stealing from uh, Bond Corporation over the painting La Promenade. I think Bond exemplifies the dangerous characteristics of corporate leaders when they're not reined in by their boards. Let's move on to a, another rogue. Medical practices fitted out with chandeliers, grand pianos and a golden glow that extended to the gold-clad hostesses. People will recall the rise of the Jeffrey Edelston super clinics but it also signalled a rise in over-servicing or over-care. So what made it possible for Edelston's concept to flourish? Well, what made it possible for Edelston to flourish is that he's a genuine entrepreneur. He came up with a groundbreaking idea, and that was to transform medicine from a cottage industry where previously you know, most GP officers were, were in a front room of their family home with an old plastic chair and you sat there, you know, next to patients coughing and spluttering and couldn't wait to get out. They also had this amazing idea that going to the doctor could not only be a really pleasant experience, it could be entertaining. And as you say, you put in gold cloud hostesses and um, little robots that dispense this and that. And, uh, and he decked them out with grand pianos and so on and so forth. He put glitz, entertainment and fun, I guess you'd say, into, into medical clinics in 24 hours, seven days a week. You know, the average GP doctor took Wednesday afternoon off. Um, so he professionalised medicine. And you could argue that this was long overdue, but it was so new and so amazing to people that there are, there's descriptions of people walking past one of Jeffrey Edelston's clinics, you know, with their nose to the window, <laughs> peering inside because it was all just so interesting and entertaining. But Edelston just ripped Medibank off blind. He was famously um, outed in Parliament in a parliamentary inquiry as Doctor X, you know, Doctor X, who was making absolute mint out of Medicare. So Edelston had all these clinics. He had uh, relationships with um, pathology providers. He was over-servicing in the pathology. He was overcharging in the GP side of things and made an absolute fortune. And the sadness of it is, is that this great reform, Medibank then Medicare, of course, uh, by uh, Whitlam and Hall Labor governments, really had no means of oversighting rogue medical practitioners like Edelston. There was just no system in there to stop this. Now, they tried and tried and tried and tried, 
they just couldn't figure it out. And of course, it still goes on. No one knows to what extent now, but I, I remember um, Adele Ferguson did a 7.30 report expose on it a few months ago and said it's still going on. So it's very hard to, it's very hard to get really tight regulatory systems on universal government programs and Edelson just drove track through it. I find this incredible. 2,000 years ago, the Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder noticed that slaves who wore asbestos cloth grew ill and died. In 1957, Dr. D.L. Gordon Thomas in the Medical Journal of Australia established that asbestos and asbestos disease was, quote, a grave threat to life and health. 2,000 years ago? Yeah. Yeah, look, uh, James Hardy's manuf manufacturing plants in Sydney, Brisbane and elsewhere, Melbourne, should have been shut down in the 60s because the evidence was in, as you mentioned, the evidence, the medical evidence was in by the mid to late 50s that this was causing mesothelioma and asbestosis and it should have been shut down and it wasn't. And you ask the question, how could a corporation get away with that? Well, the fact of the matter is, uh, and this is one of the themes in the book, that Hardy's was an example of a corporation that could capture government. And the, the family that ran Hardy's at that time, the Reed family, father and son, they were skions of Sydney society um, on all the right boards, on all the right philanthropic organisations. And basically, they were there advising the government on how to handle the asbestos industry. Just amazing. And so Hardy's, I don't think, shut down its asbestos operation until the later 80s. So had 20 years of people getting sick when they shouldn't have. And the scandal that I write about there is how, how Hardy's in 2003, 4, 5 lied about all that. It seems to be a shining example of the power of corporate denial and avoidance of responsibility and uh, pursuing a deliberate strategy to escape that responsibility. Totally. And it's what I, Greg, it's what I address as one of the big themes in the book is the shameless lack of ethics that are behind all these scandals. Just an inability of corporations to have any kind of idea of social license, any kind of, any idea of corporate social responsibility, and therefore any kind of ethics driving what they do. In the case of Hardy's, you know, around the turn of the 2000s, Hardy's executives wanted to get rid of the asbestos uh, claimants. They thought it was damaging the company's image. It was stopping them getting big loans. They wanted to expand to America. And this just all looked too ugly, a stain on their, on their reputation. So they wanted to deal with it. Well, that's good. But the way they wanted to deal with it was shameful. They were going to set up a medical fund they were going to transfer the headquarters to the Netherlands where they imagined they wouldn't be, uh, that claimants wouldn't be able to access them anymore. They set up this fund and then they got a deliberately low actuarial report on what the future liabilities were and then lied that this was adequate for the future of asbestos victims. I mean, you're talking about people that are going to die, people tied to oxygen masks, people with families. We all remember Bernie Banton you know, who was leading the charge here, you know, speaking through his oxygen mask. I mean, this was just a shameful example of corporate lack of ethics. And really the only thing they got pinged for was that they lied about the amount in the fund, not that they could 
crack off to the to the Netherlands and evade their responsibilities, or that a fund might not have enough funds in it for future liabilities. They said it was fully funded when they knew it wasn't. That's what they got pinged on. You write that the implosion of HIH was Australia's most significant corporate collapse and that the roots of that collapse lay with its CEO, Ray Williams, another charismatic leader. Given its size, what was the impact of that collapse on the insurance industry more broadly? Yeah, uh, HIH was Ray Williams. I mean, that, that was, you know, that's been widely acknowledged. And the more I probed into his running of that corporation, I mean, he basically sets it up with a partner, takes it over, um, has a flawed business model to start with um, that was never viable, that over the journey got papered over by crooked audits that lied about the company's financial position until it couldn't lie about it any longer. And so all that was going underneath uh, HIH's operations. But Ray Williams, who ran all this, was again had the constellation of dangerous characteristics for a CEO. Autocratic, grandiose, imagined himself as, a, as an industry guru, wanted to expand overseas, wanted to take HIH to the world. Uh, demanded excessive loyalty, didn't want to hear bad news, way overestimated his capacities as a, as a businessman, and the whole model was just crumbling for years. Journalists were writing about its, its uh, financial problems. Uh, Joe Hockey, then finance minister, knew about it and went to HIH himself and came away you know, with the assurance from the company that everything was okay. The regulator knew about it, ASIC. ASIC later said that, that they admitted that they knew about it and did nothing. So again, just a massive, a massive failure of regulation, a massive failure of investigation. HIH, you get the impression, was just too big to fail. So nobody wanted to touch it. And when it did fail, it caused months of ruin for the Australian economy because nobody could get insurance. The whole industry collapsed until the government reassembled it. Crony capitalism. You point to the state of Tasmania as the perfect breeding ground for crony capitalism. Is crony capitalism an unavoidable byproduct of a democratic system? And should we accept it as such? Well, no, we shouldn't accept it at all because it's undermining the integrity of the democracy uh, and is making corporations riskier. I think because they think they've got the backing, you know, they think they've got the backing and support of government when in fact they shouldn't have that in many cases. Now, crony capitalism uh, is a symbiotic relationship between big corporations and government. So they both get favorable outcomes. The corporations get uh, projects approved. Classic example is Crown, Crown Resorts approval for Barangaroo Casino in Sydney, all done as, you know, behind the scenes, all done backroom dealing, lobbying, favouritism, etc. And governments get to spruik jobs and economic development, and then they can go on and, and, and get employed, you know, by the very corporations they're giving favouritism to. And none of this, if it's managed carefully, um, breaches corruption rules because donations are legal, 
politicians are perfectly entitled to have post-political careers. And so the whole system works kind of seamlessly for both sides. If it's pushed to the extremes like it was in WA Inc., then it caused a scandal and investigation and inquiry. But often it just ticks over as a normalised part of government. And Tasmania, I've written about Tasmania uh, before with the big forestry company guns uh, that wanted to impose the, the, uh, the world ranking pulp mill in the Tamar Valley. Yeah, so Tasmania's had a bad track record of this and still does with federal hotels because federal hotels has been, been given for years a monopoly of casino and poker machine licenses in Tasmania and they've just proliferated in, in Tasmania. The Farrell family emerged, uh, you know, quite quietly on Australia's rich list, you know, worth half a billion dollars. Uh, the public interest about whether gambling should have proliferated in Tasmania to the extent that it has just gone basically unaddressed. And so we have, you know, a really terrible example, in my view, of corporate power run amok with governments basically taking it off. My final question to you, Quentin, is about regulation. We have deregulation. We have self-regulation. Is there a better balance to be found between government regulation and self-regulation of corporate life? Yeah, look, I think it's probably more accurate to say what we've had in Australia over the last 30 years is light touch regulation. So we've got regulators and the argument is the regulators go after the little guys and but when the big scandals come around with the big corporations, they don't really pursue them unless they have to. And so the question is, why are these regulators like ASIC and APRA too timid? Yeah. And in being timid, they continually send the wrong message to corporations that have got poor corporate culture, that you've got a pretty good chance of getting away with pursuing profits at all costs, even if you run a mark and run into scandal, because not much will happen. And so it's a debate about whether the Corporations Act, I don't want to get too technical, you know, specifies bad behaviour clearly enough or whether the regulators are just too timid in taking on powerful corporations. I think there's an argument either side of that, but the bottom line is we have failed to have sufficiently tough regulators in Australia. You look at America, Bernie Madoff, you know, running the Ponzi scheme, 20 years in jail. Jeff Schilling, who ran Enron, multiple years in prison. Alan Bond, three years. There's only a handful of, 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 of these uh, corporate executives and CEOs who, in the string of scandals I write about, who have ever been charged with anything and fewer still that have ever gone to jail. So clearly we've had inadequate penalties. Clearly we've had inadequate, uh, tough regulators. And that's one of the reasons why these scandals have persisted. Well, it's certainly a sorry tale, but it's a very interesting one. Quentin Beresford, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. I've been talking to Quentin Beresford about his new book, Rogue Corporations, Inside Australia's Biggest Business Scandals. It's published by New South, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.